morning I was sitting at the breakfast counter and finishing my sermon, and all the other kids were asleep. And uh, except for Peter, our youngest, and he was in the high chair next to me. And so, and he loves bananas, and so that's an easy thing to give him for breakfast. So I'm standing there and breaking little pieces of banana off, put them on his tray, and he's just grabbing them by the fistful and shoving them in his mouth and looking up at me with this really sloppy grin. And you know, I just, in that moment, was thinking, it is a privilege and a joy to feed this little boy. As messy as it is. And brothers and sisters, it is a privilege and a joy to feed you this morning the Word of God. Hopefully it won't be quite as messy. 2 Samuel 23. We've reached the last words, the scriptures tell us, of David. Last words can be sobering. They can be comical, ironic, even at times. Sometimes they turn out to be a very appropriate, even poignant summary of that person's life or personality. The German reformer Martin Luther said this with his final breath, we are beggars. This is true. July 4th, 1826, the American president and lifelong patriot John Adams took solace with his final breath on his deathbed that his friend and rival had outlived him who was also sick. And his final words were these, Thomas Jefferson survives. The irony of things back then is they did not have social media. He did not know Thomas Jefferson had also passed on the birth date of the nation that they had both fought to found just a few hours before. At the death of Karl Marx, he's quoted as saying, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. <laughs> American actor Vic Morrow's famous last words, I should have asked for a stunt double. The Bible itself actually records the famous last words of lots of different characters, if you think about it. I'm sure we can all picture Samson uttering his final prayer to God. Let me die with the Philistines. And who can forget the most iconic last words of all time? It is finished. Sometimes a person comes to a moment of clarity in the face of death. As a soul lingers on the threshold from this world to the next. This morning, David's final words are filled with hope. Even as David is about to breathe his last, because David is looking beyond the grave. So let's stand together. We're going to honor the reading of God's word from 2 Samuel 23 this morning. We want to join David in hope as he looks to the anchor of his soul. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed, the God of Jacob. 
the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secured. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So ends the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. Verse 1 reads like a headstone. It's identifying David by all of his most cherished titles. These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. These titles remind us of all the things that have transpired in the life of David. This is the man who was handpicked from among the sons of Jesse. You remember that story? The lowly shepherd boy who was placed on an exalted throne. This is the anointed, literally the Messiah of the God of Jacob. This moniker reminds us that King David is the answer to a promise God made to Jacob back in Genesis. Kings shall come from your own body. But as this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one begins to sing his swan song, his final psalm, he begins with this moment of stark clarity in verse 2. He says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. It's kind of popular these days. Perhaps you've encountered this uh, kind of argument before. That the authors of the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures have been grossly misunderstood, misinterpreted by their readers in subsequent centuries. Moses, David, Jesus. These men never intended for their words to be taken as the literal word of God. or to be treated with such awe and respect. They didn't think they were writing divinely inspired words, certainly not the word of God. That's something that people afterwards in the church projected back in their reading upon the scripture, something that was never intended. While this is a clever argument for those who have never actually read the Bible, it's clear from myriads of passages, including the one that we have read this morning, that the writers of Scripture were fully cognizant, fully aware that what they were writing and what they were speaking were the very oracles of God. That they were communicating to the people of God, not the words of men, 
and not just the words of men about God. But they were communicating the very word of God. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Men don't like statements like this coming out of the mouths of men like King David because it implies exclusivity. What it implies is if I want to hear the word of God, I have to listen to King David. His word is on my tongue means that if I want access to his word, I have to submit to God's chosen king. If I want access to the God of Jacob, if I want to hear from the rock of Israel, I have to come through his anointed. That's how God has chosen to speak. And if this is true for King David, how much more is it true of the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah? The one who comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, by men like David. But in these last times, he has spoken to us by his son. Brothers and sisters, as David comes to the end of his life, he pens the words of a song that he no longer has the strength in his lungs to sing. Why? Because he's writing this song for someone else to sing. His son. The son of Jesse. The man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. Jesus Christ himself is singing this morning from his heavenly throne. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. If you want to hear the word of the Lord, if you want to speak with God, if you want to know the Lord's will for you, God speaks by, through Jesus Christ and him alone. God's word proceeds from his tongue. You have to receive Jesus in order to hear the word of God. We've heard it already this morning. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. That's what a mediator is. Jesus speaks for God and God speaks to us by Jesus Christ. This brings us to our first point of application. Number one, let his word be on your tongue. Let his word be on your tongue. Jesus says, his word is on my tongue. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are being made like him. If the word of God is on Jesus' tongue, it should be on yours as well. You ought to be singing this song too. The question is, how on earth can we do that? Jesus tells us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we say comes out of our hearts. So then... What has to be the abundance of our hearts? David writes in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart. You want his word to be on your tongue? Well, you've got to put his word first in your heart. This is why we listen to preaching of the word. 
This is why we sing songs that are filled with the word. This is why we go home and we read the word day by day. This is why we work hard to memorize the word so that our hearts are so filled with the word that when we open our mouths, the word just comes spilling out. My kids have this fun habit of uh, whenever they want to fill up their cups in the kitchen, they must fill them all the way to the brim. I don't know if they're worried the faucet's just going to quit producing water. But of course, they crawl, crawl onto their stool, they fill it to the brim, and then as they're getting down, you can imagine what happens on their trip all the way back to the kitchen table. Well, you can tell everywhere they've been because there's a trail of wet from where they've walked. Brothers and sisters, that's the way it ought to be with us and the word. People should know where we've been because wherever we've been, we've spilled the word. It's just spilling out of us, out of the abundance of our hearts. Whether we've been at church or at home or at work or in our community, because everywhere we have been, we can see the influence of the word of God. When was the last time you sat down and read God's word. I mean, this is, we're just talking about basic ABCs of Christianity here. When was the last time? When was the last time you sat down and said, I'm going to memorize this verse? Well, that's kid stuff. Is it? Is it though? How are you filling the treasury of your heart with his word so that you may speak his word? Jesus says, his word is on my tongue. Well, those words have been recorded for us here. If we want these words to be on our tongue, we have to be pouring these words into our hearts. Let us place our lips at God's disposal that he may speak by them and let his words be on our tongue. As David's final song here begins to unfold, we see why it's so essential for a king to have God's word continually at the ready. On his lips, proceeding forth from his mouth, a kingdom where the abundance of the king's heart is God's word is going to be a kingdom that is flourishing under his rule. Look at verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on the cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. There's one thing that the Old Testament illustrates. It's that as, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. The sins of a king are soon seen on display in the sins that fill his kingdom. We've seen that in the life of David himself. But praise God, the converse is graciously true as well. The righteousness of a king soon begins to fill his kingdom. Sinful kings make for sinful kingdoms. Righteous kings make for righteous kingdoms. Kings who speak the word of God fill their kingdom with righteousness and reverence, verse 4 says. They rule justly. They rule in the fear of God. And everything in their kingdom flourishes, sprouts, and grows. 
who dawns on his kingdom like the morning light, the Lord says in verse 4, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Friends, Jesus dawns on us like that, like the morning light, like the sun shining through your window on a cloudless morning. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But Jesus also says, you, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Which brings us to our second point of application this morning. Number two, let your light shine. The lamp doesn't light itself, we know that. Jesus says, let your light shine before others. That is kingly language. Rule in the fear of God. Rule over my kingdom where I have appointed you as priest kings. Rule with righteousness and fear. You serve with borrowed light, but it's your job to shine. I was speaking with my friend Ian this weekend. It was his birthday, and he was telling me his dad has found a new hobby. He, uh, he goes to yard sales and finds these really weird, quirky objects, and he turns them into lamps. So, like, he finds a trumpet, and he turns it into a lamp, or a flute, turns it into a lamp, or a car transmission, turns it into a lamp, fishing basket, turns it into a lamp, and he's, people are buying these. Now, as cool and quirky as a flute lamp may be, ultimately, you don't judge the quality of a lamp by how shiny the keys on the flute are, but by how well the lamp shines. In fact, good light makes you not look at the light. Think about the sun for a moment. How often do you go outside and just stand in the lawn and stare at the sun. Dad, do you do that? No. It would explain a lot. You sure? Yeah. No, we don't do that. In fact, you could probably go an entire week waking up, working, playing outside, driving all over God's green earth, relaxing, reading, doing yard work, whatever. Go an entire week and not once look at the sun. Because that's the sign of good light. Think about the opposite. Anyone here been in a basement where there's a flickering fluorescent light? All it does is draw your attention to it because you're thinking, is this thing going to cut off? It's bad light. David says that's the way it is with kings. A good king is like a sun. His reign is so constant, so consistent, so reliable, so gentle, so just and pure and trustworthy that the people never question in the morning whether he's still on his throne. It's like the clockwork of dawn. He was on his throne yesterday and the morning before that and the one before that. And I trust he is today and will ever be. And everything under his light flourishes. Plants grow, the trees bear fruit, men and women labor and multiply justice and righteousness reign in eternal life. But a bad king's light flickers. The people 
under that light are constantly wondering, is it going to cut out today? Well, we're certainly not going to do any important work in that kind of a light because it's not reliable. With no light, there's no growth, there's no fruit, there's no work, love grows cold, and then the darkness, wickedness, sin, and death reign. When Jesus says, let your light shine, this is a royal exhortation. It's a command to do what 2 Samuel 23 is saying. Reign justly. Rule in the fear of God. This means we recognize that whatever authority has been given to us is derived. It comes from God. Whatever kingdom, whatever job, whatever body, whatever possessions, whatever time or talents have been given to you to rule over, those things have been given to you by God. And you have been given these things to rule them according to the just nature of the God who made this universe. So whatever little kingdom, principality, whatever responsibility he has given you to rule over, it's yours to rule justly and in the fear of God. We've seen, those of us who have been together in 2 Samuel, how quickly things can unravel when a king does not rule justly, when he does not act according to the fear of God. David himself himself is an illustration of that. Dads, take note. Bosses, take note. Pastors, we better take note. And people in authority sin against the people that have been entrusted to them. Pastors committing adultery or overlooking abuse or embezzling, their place of authority magnifies the effects of their sin over the people they've been given. I wonder, mom, dad, teacher, boss, you dawn on the people in your life. When you come into work, do you just bring the light with you? When you see, greet your children in the morning, their faces light up because mom is talking to them. Dad is showing the love of Christ to them. Teachers, do you dawn on the students in your classroom? Or do you fill the lives of the people in your life with darkness, gloom, discouragement, and despair? Brothers and sisters, if we have beheld the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ, it's our job to let our light shine. Finally and thirdly, David is breathing his last, and this is his hope, this is his final exhortation to us this morning, trust the promise of God. Trust his promises. Verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an eternal covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? David phrases verse 5 as a set of questions, but not because he questions whether they're true. 
He phrases it as a question to show how utterly absurd it is to question the promises of God. For does not my house stand so with God? For has he not made an eternal covenant ordered in all things and secure? Will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? I mean, to even say it out loud, David says, is ridiculous. To even speak these questions aloud is absurd. Of course David's house stands this way with God. He has made an everlasting covenant. If you would like to read it, it's recorded in chapter 7. Will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Utterly nonsense, David says, for me to even speak this question aloud. I will trust his promises. But maybe you look at the circumstances of your life and you say, but it doesn't look like prosperity to me. It looks like poverty. It doesn't look like success. It looks like failure. It doesn't feel like delight. It feels like sorrow. It doesn't look like help. It certainly does not feel like salvation. What is David experiencing as he's penning these words again? David is on his deathbed. If David thinks these questions are preposterous as he is breathing his last breath, as his eyes are closing in death, then certainly it is preposterous for us not to trust God's promises in whatever circumstances we may be in today. You see, the promises of God are not as short-sighted as we are. God isn't just trying to get you joy for today. He's not just trying to get you joy for tomorrow. He is working for your eternal joy. When doubts or worries or failures enter our path, Christ, our Messiah himself, says, has he not promised? Do you belong to my house? Because my house is founded on the well-ordered, steadfast promises of God. Aren't those eternal promises set in stone? And the Spirit of God should bear witness in your own heart, I am on the path to eternal life. This is the way of salvation, regardless of whether I am sitting on the throne in Jerusalem or being chased across the Judean countryside by my own son. This is the path. This is the way. God has promised, and I will simply trust. even when the Messiah's own people delivered him up to be crucified, even when he was put to a public death, even when the Messiah's dead body was locked in a cave behind a heavy stone, even then nothing could stop the well-ordered and secure promises of God from coming true. So friends, why are you and I so worried? So your future feels a bit uncertain. Your circumstances seem a little bleak. Even if your own family were to march through the back door of this church and take you out to the front lawn and nail you on a cross and put your body in a locked vault, none of that could undo the well-ordered, secure promises of God to you in Christ Jesus. So this is the line between us and worthless men. 
The worthless men are like thorns gathered up and cast into the fire, David says. This is the line. Faithful men and women, they aren't stronger. They aren't more valiant. They aren't more able or skilled or self-willed than fools. The line between faith and foolishness is this. God's faithful ones trust his promises. That's it. Even on their deathbed with their final breath, they're saying, isn't God faithful? Isn't he keeping all of his promises? Won't he do it? No difficulty, no trial, not even death itself will make us waver concerning the promises of God. We are fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised. Friends, the risen Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, died as true as David did. He was buried with his fathers. But I testify to you today that that same Jesus, God has raised in answer to all the promises God made to David and his house forevermore. And I imagine that David somewhere in heaven, God brought his son out of the grave, must have been saying to himself, I knew it. I knew it. Do you know? <coughs> Jesus is on the throne of his father David, alive forevermore, and he says, my house is standing on the promises of God. Do you belong to that house? Are you one of his? On the day of his return, will you rejoice in your everlasting covenant king, or will you wither away and be thrown into the fire? Let his word be on your tongue. Let your light shine. Brothers and sisters, trust his promises. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us such a great and mighty king. We thank you for sustaining his house by your promises. We pray, God, that you'd help us to take steps of faith, doing what's right and leaving the results to you. We pray that you would renew our zeal this new year to be in your word, reading it, studying it, meditating on it day and night. We will find ourselves truly blessed. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the light so that we can shine, reigning justly in the fear of God over the responsibilities you've given us in this new year. We pray all these things trusting in Jesus' name. Amen.